You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. This 117th Congress, the American people chose an evenly split Senate. It gives me great pride to serve as Speaker of the most diverse House of Representatives in the history of our country. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter at The Washington Post. I tend to cover the House of Representatives on a daily basis, and that's why I'm very excited to talk to Congresswoman Ashley Hinson. She's a Republican from Iowa. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Mariana. Thanks for having me. So before I turn to you for some questions, I actually wanted to tell our viewers they can ask some questions live. We'll try to incorporate that through our conversation if um, they can tweet at post live. Um, but Congresswoman, I wanted to turn to you the news of the week, likely something that is going to continue to dominate the conversation here in Washington. That, of course, is the likelihood of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, I, I know that is not an official decision. It, it, the Supreme Court has not said whether they're going to do that. It's a decision that will come down likely in a couple months, if not weeks. Um, you are pro-life. You've actually been tweeting and saying, quote, you know, the fight to protect innocent life isn't over. What more do you think would need to be done if, of course, Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade? What other steps do you think a Republican majority would like to do? Yeah, well, I think that the the fight for innocent life means fighting for all parts of life, right? So we need to work on making sure that we're supporting mothers, uh, which has been a huge passion of mine um, in my pro-life work in Congress, because, um, you know, I think we, we have a lot of work to do there uh, when it comes to maternal access to health. Uh, Iowa, my district specifically, has six counties that are considered maternal health care deserts. So uh, right now you've got women who are having to drive a significant distance to be able to get care, period, for maternal health. Um, so that's an area where I've done a lot of work and know we have more work to do there. And that I think is very, very pro-life. Another area that I think we we can make some progress is in supporting families when they experience um, not so good of an outcome, a stillbirth, for example. I've actually worked with Congresswoman Alma Adams, a Democrat, so working across the aisle on this very pro-life issue to support women who to, to make sure that they don't experience a stillbirth, to look for those signs and warning signs, and to make sure that they have critical access to the care that they need. So um, there are a lot of policy places where we can actually work together on pro-life policy. And, um, you know, this, I think, with, with the Supreme Court, they haven't obviously made that decision. But I think that I will continue to work on and champion pro-life policies, um, making sure that we are providing that care to mothers no matter uh, what their age. And there are some conversations among Republicans, national, some state, local and they're talking about a potential federal ban on abortions. I want to ask you about any exceptions. Do you support, you know, any abortions if in case the mother's life is at risk, incest, rape? I know that's a question that's come up in Congress before. Yeah. And I have supported a heartbeat bill here in Iowa that had exceptions for those very things. And I think um, ultimately, you know, our states are prepared to to make those decisions. And and uh, obviously every state is going to have a different outcome in terms of uh, whatever that policy could be. But I don't think now is the time to engage in hypotheticals. I think we we need to wait for the Supreme Court to make their decision. And then our state legislators will do their job, which is how our founding fathers intended. Um, I am having a lot of conversations, as you can imagine, about about this in my district. I just finished 
finished a week out on the road, um, did my 20th in-person town hall. I have 20 counties. I did a town hall in every single one of them. And yeah, we're talking about pro-life issues, but uh, most of the conversations in the district when I'm out on the road are about the issues affecting everyone's everyday lives right now, which are um, things like inflation, the gas prices. I was just up in Decorah, which is uh, the northern part of my district. Gas topped over $4 a gallon here in Iowa, $5.38 for diesel. Um, those economic bread and butter kitchen table issues continue to be the, the main thing that I'm hearing about out on the road. Um, and I'll continue to focus on all of these policies in Washington. Yeah, I actually do want to ask you about the economy, but before I turn to that, you mentioned talking to your constituents about this. Obviously, this is something that I think everyone in the U.S. has heard one way or the other. Um, a recent Washington Post poll actually found that a margin of 54 to 28 percent of Americans want or do not want Roe v. Wade to be overturned. Um, we'll also talk about the midterms, but I, I wanted to talk to you specifically on that. Why do Republicans think maybe this is a winning issue? Maybe you all don't think it's a winning issue to talk about pro-life um, positions. Um, how You've mentioned a little bit about how you're talking about it, but how are you counseling some of these voters who are coming up to you and say, I don't know how I feel about this? Yeah. Well, I think I just talk about the real life stories that I've heard from people. I had someone come up to me um, after I, I voted for the heartbeat bill in, in Iowa here in the legislature that said, uh, thanks to my vote on even the 20 week bill that we had here, um, they have a daughter. Um, so that's a real life impact on, on a family here in Iowa that um, ha was able to adopt a child and, and have a, a serious success story. We need to be doing everything we can to enable those kinds of success stories to happen. And um, those are the conversations that I'm talking about with my constituents here in Iowa. So on to the economy. I know this is a huge issue for House Republicans. Um, it's something that you all are talking about extensively on the campaign trail. You know, looking ahead to a potential House Republican majority, what are some of the things that you all would want to introduce legislatively, solutions you all want to propose in that first week uh, first month, for first 100 days, if you will, uh, given that, you know, the inflation, the gas prices that you talk about really are something that you all are, are, are discussing on the campaign trail. Well, the first thing I would say, Mariana, is talking about gas prices, because that is definitely top of mind for most of my constituents right now, whether you're a small business trying to, you know, fill up your trucks so you can get out and do the work on the roads. Uh, uh, sheriffs, I've been talking to a lot of county sheriffs, their budgets are crimped by these gas price increases, uh, or an Iowan in rural America where you're driving 40 to 50 miles a day to get to work and back. I mean, that's a huge strain on budgets. So we've been talking a lot for several months about in all of the above energy strategy because here in Iowa, we are lucky enough to have a very green solution in that we've got a lot of corn, as you can imagine, um, and we have a lot of corn that goes to ethanol. Um, it's a great industry that supports a lot of jobs in our local economy, but also can provide some real relief at the pump right now. Um, I think it's a great answer to, to help drive down not only gas prices, but supply chain costs as well, um, which is a huge part about what I'm hearing about from my constituents. I visit a lot of mainstream Street, uh, small businesses here in Iowa. Um, I, I just want to share one story about a, a business that I visited in Independence where, you know, she sells uh, kind of gifts and knickknacks, candles, ornaments, uh, towels, that sort of thing. And she was lamenting, not only is she having trouble getting um, inventory, she got only about 50% of her inventory, but then uh, that costs more because of the shipping costs. And then people, when their budgets are crimped, what's the first thing that goes? They stop spending money on those, those, uh, those wants as opposed to the 
basic needs for their family. So people are going to focus instead on buying the eggs, which cost more, the bacon, which costs more, the ground beef, which costs more, um, the gallons of milk, which costs more, um, instead of going to support a local Main Street business. So I want to focus on your Main Street kitchen table conversation issues that I've been hearing about. Let's focus on that tax policy. Make sure that our small business um, tax cuts are permanent so that they can have that certainty they need to invest in their businesses long-term. We need to be focusing on getting people back to work. What's what's keeping them from getting into the into the workforce? The dignity of work. How can we help our employers to, to create more jobs, but also create more of a work culture uh, that will get people interested in coming back to work? So those are kinds of some of the, the uh, economic policies that we're looking at, um, you know, should we take control of the House? I, I am confident we will because um, I can tell you when I hear out on the ground, people ask me at my town halls, how has the Biden presidency gone so bad so quickly? Um, it's it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's inflation, it's a crisis at the southern border, and it's all of these policies that have uh, taken our, our country in a wrong direction and also uh, made life harder for everyday working families. You mentioned the workforce. I think something that has been made pretty clear by the pandemic was, you know, how much women, right, need to balance work, need to balance their their kids. And, and some have had to make the tough decision of not returning to work because they don't have adequate childcare. I know this is an issue of importance to you. And, you know, Democrats are making the argument to counter inflation, things like that. Maybe we should be passing more childcare legislation to help families to help these women re-enter the workforce when they really can't right now. Um, are you working in a bipartisan fashion? Because even if Republicans take the House, right, you're still going to have a Democratic president. We don't know what's going to happen to the Senate. Are you working with some Democrats to try and pass some child care uh, provisions? What, what would you also like to see done um, either this Congress or next Congress as well? Yeah. Well, we have been absolutely working on this. In fact, I just visited two child care centers last week. Um, so one of the things that we've tried to do is provide um, some grant dollars and open up some economic development money, which I think is a true bipartisan um, effort to make sure that um, those funds can be accessed so that we can provide critical care to families. That's especially important in a district like mine, where you've got uh, not only maternal care deserts, but child care deserts as well, where areas where you are driving 20, 30, 40 miles to, to make sure you can access that child care. So um, one of the ways where I've tried to approach it is not only by um, that economic development dollars going in, which we have a bill um, to do that in a bipartisan way, but also looking at it from the regulatory side. Uh, policymakers, I think, sometimes have um, the best interest at heart, but don't necessarily consider the long-term ramifications of some of the policies they put into place. Um, this is especially true, I think, with some of the child care regulations in this country. Some of that is at the state level. So what I wanted to do was take a look at some of the regulations around the country that may not be safety-based, right? We want to make sure our kids are safe when we drop them off someplace during the day so that we as parents can go to work. Uh, my boys are 9 and 11. I remember what that felt like, dropping them off at a child care center um, and trusting them to, to take care of my babies while I was off working. Um, but I think we need to make sure that those regulations are specific to safety and not onerous um, because all that does is drive up costs. 
at a time when we want to make sure our child care centers and our child care providers are paid uh, paid more, uh, we need to figure out ways to drive down their bottom line costs. So regulatory environment is one area where I think that's important. But let's talk about the impact of inflation on this business as well. I mean, the food cost for feeding our kids has gone up. Uh, the utility cost for running these buildings and centers has gone up significantly as well, um, as well as labor costs. So all of those cost drivers continue to rise. Uh, we need to do everything we can to control those, drive those down and drive down bottom line costs because that's how you end up um, providing more access. Um, another place that I think um, we have a great lane to have a, a big conversation about is what does employer engagement look like here? Uh, not every employer can obviously provide on-site childcare, but what we've seen here in Iowa is employers do see this as a workforce issue. So many are investing in, um, in providing a couple of slots at a daycare center. And what that does is give those daycares uh, bottom line certainty, right? That they're gonna have a spot, they have that money coming in, and the employer then gets the benefit of making sure they can use that as a recruitment tool. So I think it's about having those kinds of conversations around childcare. How can we encourage um, a good environment for childcare? And I think that's focusing on regulation, focusing on driving down costs. Got it. I know one other issue that Republicans are going to have to answer to at some point is the issue also of, of Social Security. I know it hasn't necessarily been in the news except for one Republican senator who essentially said it should be dismantled at some point in time. I know in your town halls, which I think you have hit every county in your district by this point, um, and there's still a lot more time to go till November, but in one of those town halls, you were asked about that. You know, what, what is the position uh, that a you know, Republicans, especially in a House GOP majority, would do to address the issue. You had mentioned, you know, there would have to be some tough decisions that would have to be made. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what exactly you all hope to do to either tweak, change, address issues in the system? Yeah. Well, right now there aren't any specific plans that I think are um, are being talked about, but I think really this conversation is about the long-term financial security of our country. Um, Social security is a part of that. Um, and one thing I want to be very, very clear on is I want to make sure that our seniors have the benefits that they were promised because uh, many people have set their entire retirement uh, around those benefits. So we need to do everything we can to make sure that those um, are there for, for those who have been promised. Um, but the reality is that we are facing that that long-term cliff here where Social Security is going to go insolvent. And if that happens, uh, it will be an automatic cut for seniors. And that's what I don't want to see happen. So when I talk about making sure that we address that, it's talking about the long-term budgeting for our country. We are on a, an out-of-control uh, spending splurge right now where um, that's unsustainable. And ultimately, all of those things collide at, in just a few years, and that will negatively impact Social Security. So I want to make sure, again, that this is preserved long-term so that it's there for not only my parents who are Social Security age and on it right now, and many of the seniors I talk to, um, I think everybody realizes that they want to see smart decisions made for the future of the program, because this is about the future of the program. But so one of the things that we are working on, I'm on the House Appropriations and Budget Committees. We need to be having real conversations about budgeting, right? I mean, it's completely uh, unrealistic to budget on a 2.3% inflation rate for 10 years, which is the budget that the Biden administration just 
introduced uh, a few weeks ago. And when we asked them about, um, I asked Director Young about that specifically, why are you putting out a 10-year projection that's completely unreasonable? Uh, a year ago, I asked her specifically, why are you not accounting for inflation here? They said it's transitory. Well, it's clearly not transitory. We're experiencing 40-year high record inflation, 8.5% in the month of March alone. Um, so it's it's got to be a conversation about getting back to the basics of the economy so that we can make smart fiscal decisions long term, which is what I am focused on. I actually wanted to uh, ask a voter question that pivots kind of nicely to the midterms. Um, they ask, this is Robert Kellaway from Maryland. He asked, should Iowa maintain its first in the nation caucus position? Now, I know that this is a question that Democrats are really grappling with, given what happened in 2020 with their own voting systems that didn't end up really declaring a winner officially. That's not necessarily happening on the Republican side. Um, well, if you could answer that question and also what would it mean if, if even one of the parties was no longer in Iowa during this time, what would it mean for the local economy there? Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Robert, for for dialing in and listening in this morning. And um, you're right. I think it would be it would be great if Iowa can maintain its first in the nation status for caucuses. Uh, it is not only a huge part of history, but it's a huge part of vetting in the presidential politics. Uh, these candidates come to Iowa, and Iowans ask some pretty tough questions. Um, I know because I've been on the receiving end of those at my 20 town halls that I've done in my district, but I think Iowans do a really great job of vetting candidates and, and uh, making sure that they're on the record on things that are important to uh, middle America and the heartland, which is a huge portion of our country. Um, so I would love to see us continue to be first in the nation status because I think we do a pretty good job of vetting those candidates. Um, as far as economic impact, it does have a huge impact to the state of Iowa. You look at all of the the candidates that come in, the campaigns that come in, the media that comes in um, and spends a significant amount of time and money here, it's a huge boost to our local economy as well. And so I would love to see it stay so we can help support, again, more of those Main Street small businesses, those small coffee shops that presidential candidates go to visit and have um, many town halls in as well. Um, I, I think we can, we can definitely make it happen. I think the Democrats learned some very important lessons from how things were executed um, in the last cycle. But I can tell you Republicans, we got it right. Um, we didn't have any problems with our caucuses and we know the system and we can make sure we execute it efficiently and, um, and make sure we're picking good candidates coming out of America's heartland. Yeah, as a fellow reporter, I can confirm a lot of time is spent in Iowa. Can't even tell you how many weeks I spent there during the 2020 election and, you know, traveled all over the state. Um, I now want to talk to you, of course, about the midterms. You are playing a pretty critical role. You're only a freshman. You've been around on Capitol Hill for almost a full two years now, but you're trying to recruit a number of what the National Republican Campaign Committee call young guns, promising new members that could potentially help you all in your pathway to regaining the majority. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, you know, what are some of the qualities, traits that you all have, have tried to find among a lot of Republican primary, there's a number of candidates running in them. What does it take to become a young gun and to be in some ways mentored by you? 
Yeah, well, I'm very proud of the field of candidates that we have running this cycle. We look around the country and you have candidates that match their districts, right? And that's really what we're trying to find is people who can speak as a great voice, a Republican conservative voice for their districts. So you've got uh, great candidates like Jen Kiggins in Virginia Beach. Uh, Beach. Um, I've been there personally to support her and and make sure that her story is heard. She's a you know a, a former Navy veteran, um, a, a physician's. Uh, she's a, a nurse practitioner, I believe, and um, works very hard to make sure she's supporting seniors and supporting veterans in her community. That's important in an area like Virginia Beach. So recruiting a candidate like her who is going to make sure that uh, that district's um, the, that district's perspective is heard and uh, has a seat at the table, that's really critical. Uh, candidates like Amanda Adkins in Kansas, uh, she came close last time. She's running again this cycle. Esther Joy King in Illinois, um, she's you know a phenomenal candidate, also a JAG officer right in the Army um, and, and, and running as a young woman. So um, those are just three women candidates that we've got running that I have been um, specifically helping and communicating with. Um, but really what it comes down to is when you look at our success in the 2020 election, um, it was every seat that we flipped was uh, flipped by a woman, a minority or a veteran. And so around the country, that's exactly who you're seeing step up to run. And um, they will be great additions to our Republican conference. And I'm looking forward to helping elevate them um, as young guns. We want to make sure candidates are working hard. I mean, it's it's a it's a hard job to run for office. And, uh, you know, we look at all those metrics when we're, we're kind of looking at candidates and who we want to support. But um, ultimately, candidates who work hard, who who meet the needs of their district and know that they can be a good voice for their district, that's the kind of candidate we want to support. You actually mentioned something that I, I wanted to ask you about. You came in during a pretty historic class. Every single Democratic seat that was previously held and was flipped by a Republican was flipped by a woman. Um, you mentioned, you know, more minorities are, are running. That is something that it almost seems like a lesson learned by the Republican Party um, after several years where, you know, recruitment wasn't as great because there were a lot of white male uh, candidates who were running in the past. Do you think the Republican Party has learned its lesson in, in this way, running people who look more like their communities, who also have a different array of backgrounds? Well, the first thing I would say is the Republican Party's not running these these candidates. These candidates are stepping up to run. And I think that's really important in this conversation. Around the country, you've seen women and minorities and veterans who are saying, it's time. I am not going to sit on the sidelines anymore and watch our country go in the wrong direction. So that call to duty and that call to service is really what's driving people to step up and run. I know in my case, you know, I have two young children. My husband has had a small business that he's running. And, you know, that's hugely challenging. There's no good time to step up and run for office, but you have to if you believe in the future of our country. And that's exactly what inspired me to step up. And that's what we're seeing happen across the country. People feel that sense of service and wanting to make sure we're riding the wrong direction in our country. So um, I think it's incredibly inspiring to see how many people have put their name on the ballot. It's not easy to run for office. You do have to answer tough questions, but you also, I think, have a great opportunity, especially right now, to have a platform about a vision for the future of our country and the next generation, which is absolutely critical. I actually wanted to ask you, you know, what are you telling women who are, who are running? You, of course, mentioned, you know, it's difficult to run for office, regardless of, of where you come from. Um, but how are you mentoring them specifically? And for what is your message for this newer generation of women who are considering running um, in Republican races in the future? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, like I said, there's no good time to do anything, especially when you have kids, but um, you can make it work. I have a very supportive husband. My husband, Matt, has been um, by my side, truly. Uh, we sat on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial when we decided to run for, for this seat here in Congress because it is a we. Um, but one thing I'm telling uh, other women and, and men with young children, too, I don't want to discount the men with young children who are stepping up to run, is that um, it, you can you can make it work. Um, one of the things that I have some some baseline rules of when I'm home, um, you know, I don't schedule things uh, before eight o'clock in the morning because I want to be able to walk my my nine-year-old down to the bus and still be a good mom to my kids. Um, and then I try to be home shortly after they get off the bus in the afternoons. Um, so what I tell working parents, for example, is, hey, you can do this, set some parameters, and then you can still make it work and still get out and do what you need to do in your district and still serve your constituents. But ultimately, people understand. Um, I've been at, you know, Republican County dinners on a Sunday evening, and I say, hey, you know what? I, I'm glad to be with y'all. I'm finished speaking. I'm going to head home and be with my family. And people really respect that. So one of the things that um, I've tried to do is make sure that I'm encouraging people with families to step up and run. Um, nothing gives you more perspective like having to come home, cook some mac and cheese, walk the dog, do some laundry, and, and make sure you're still being a good um, wife and mother. Um, and it actually makes me, I think, a better member of Congress to have to come home and, and, and be a normal person um, and face those realities that every family is facing right now. So um, that's what I'm kind of telling every every uh, working mom or woman or veteran or minority who's calling me asking for advice. Um, and then the other thing I tell them is just just work hard, you know, work hard and, and don't be afraid to have fun in this job. You know, it is it's it's definitely a grueling pace to be on the campaign trail, but you get some really, really neat experiences and life experiences, too. So just to embrace those and enjoy the day that you're in. Got it. Well, Congresswoman, I do have another question from one of our viewers. This is coming from Mindy Ayler. She asks, what do you see as policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? I know there's a lot of conversation among Republicans about energy, especially as we've seen through Russia and Ukraine and the high gas prices. Yeah, well, we have a great story to tell here in Iowa in terms of renewable energy sources. And so that's um, one of the areas that I've been focused on. We have more than half of our power in Iowa comes from renewable energy sources. So you talk about a great way to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It's looking at those those technologies. They continue to become more and more efficient, produce more um, with less materials. Okay. Uh, we have uh, an amazing amount of wind power here. We have natural gas. We um, have solar. We have kind of a, a mixed bag of renewable sources here in Iowa. Uh, I think that's great. We also need to be, in terms of fuel, as I mentioned early on, looking at our biofuels industry. That's a green renewable fuel that we can burn. It burns clean, cleaner. Um, and I think that's a great option that we can use to help um, make a real measurable impact on, on uh, our greenhouse gas emissions. So all of those things combined, I think, are uh, a great recipe for, for helping in that regard. You know, we only have a couple minutes left. I kind of wanted to ask you about the future of the Republican caucus. I know Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said in the past, you know, Republicans may not have, Republican voters, I should say, haven't really considered the party. We're, we want them to take a look at us again, take a look at what we have to offer. Uh, the caucus, or excuse me, the conference is going to be releasing a number of task force proposals on different policies. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious about, how you all kind of see the next steps? How would you be welcoming some voters that may have left in, in previous elections, not considered you all, and make sure that you also have a governing majority 
in Congress, which is important for you all to be able to pass whatever legislation you'd all uh, like to in the next years to come. Yeah, well, you mentioned our task forces, Mariana, and I think that's really important. We are wanting to be ready to go on day one because we are going to take back the majority. And I think when we do, I think Kevin McCarthy will be the next speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. And I'm looking forward to serving under his leadership and moving this country again in the right direction, wronging some of uh, the uh, righting some of the wrongs that we've seen um, happen over the last year and a half. Um, we want to make sure that those policies are ready to go. So what you're seeing us do is introduce bills already. Um, I'm on the Jobs and Economy Task Force as an example, and we are focused on making sure that we're putting out pro-growth, pro-economic, pro-worker policies for the American people. That's a place where I think we have a lot of opportunity to bring in people who may not have considered us before. You talk about some of these child care policies. You know, I'm a working mom. We have a lot more working parents in the Republican conference than we used to. Um, so you're going to see some of those policies make their way to the forefront to help our working families in this country, um, because there's certainly not getting that help from the Biden administration right now. So one of the things that I think um, as we're talking to voters around the country, asking them to look at um, voting for a Republican in, in the next election, it's do you want go government out of your life? Do you want more regulation out of your life? Do you want to be able to have lower taxes and keep more of your own hard-earned money? Those are some basic tenets that we are continuing to support policies around. Um, the budget that uh, President Biden's administration just proposed does nothing to protect tax cuts for our small businesses and for working families. So uh, we will continue to focus on those pro-growth, pro-worker, pro-family policies that will help our country and be successful in the long run. Well, Congresswoman, that's all the time we have for today. I wanted to thank you for joining us and bringing us your perspective. Thank you for having me, Mariana, and thanks everybody for watching today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.